Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. When I say blink, what do you think? Of that American POW who blinked the word torture in Morse code live on Vietnamese TV? He's doing three things at once. He's participating in this interview. He's blinking Morse code and uh, he's pretending to be blinded. Or do you think of someone with locked-in syndrome who can only communicate by blinking? He said how's about one blink for yes, two blinks for no, three blinks for I love you. And then he looked at me and he was like, is that enough? And I remember blinking no. And he said to me, how's about four blinks for you're a moron? (laughs) Or do you think about the idea of a universal eye language that uses blinking? I'm Kyone Wolf, all that plus a headset that measures the blinking of long distance drivers so they know when to take a break and what it's like when you have a rare condition that makes it so you can't stop blinking. It's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When I told my friends on the social medias that we want to do a show about blinking, and asked what came to mind, I got over 250 comments. They suggested things like, you should talk to someone who has locked-in syndrome. They can only blink to communicate. And somebody invented a universal language using blinking. And why is the band Blink-182 called Blink-182? What's wrong with 183 or 181 or 9? And wasn't there a war hero who blinked a message in Morse code? Yes, yes, yes. I don't know, and yes. On today's show, you'll hear about all of that, except for the Blink-182 thing, along with what dark matter is made of, whether the dress was black and blue or white and gold, and why some people reheat fish in the shared company microwave. It's a mystery. But let's start with that story about the POW blinking in Morse code. You may remember Blake Stillwell from the Audacious episode about how the way we train our dogs tells us a lot about ourselves. He told the story about World War II mercy dogs who were trained to find injured and dying soldiers. Blake is a former Air Force combat camera operator and currently the veteran jobs editor at Military.com, where, surprise, I saw his name on an article about that American POW, Jeremiah Denton, who blinked the word torture while live on Vietnamese television. I asked him to give me some context on the soldier's most creative and effective plan. Jeremiah Denton was a naval aviator. He was deployed to Vietnam pretty much at the beginning, 1965. And he was a leader of the attack squadron 77 from the USS Independence. And on his 12th mission, uh, he was flying over North Vietnam when his A-6 intruder just got lit up by anti-aircraft fire and he was shot down. His recollection of getting shot down was, uh, you know, at first I, I just felt rage. I was angry at myself for getting shot down and I was angry at them for shooting me down. He managed to evade the North Vietnamese army for uh, a time, but eventually they found him, dragged him out of a ditch and put him in captivity. And pretty much from the beginning, the treatment was harsh as they were paraded through the streets of the city, the citizens uh, beat them and, you know, spat verbal insults at them. 
he would be a prisoner through the whole war. So we're talking like seven years, seven months for him, which is a long, a long time for, to do anything. Hard to fathom. Yeah, brutal. They were beaten, starved. And uh, for Denton, uh, he was pretty much uh, one of the hardest prisoners to deal with. So they had to actually rig a special device uh, for him that cut off his circulation for a long period of time. So what, as a POW, was he expected to do about his situation? What was his training telling him to do? The American Code of Conduct for POWs is uh, to resist by any means necessary, right? And escape attempts, you know, force the enemy to, you know, use resources to catch you that they would might rather be using for the war or something else. Uh, that's probably the most common. But um, Americans aren't supposed to be model prisoners and Denton was anything but a model prisoner. And he ended up actually spending a lot of time in solitary confinement because of his will to resist. I read he spent four years in total by himself in a windowless concrete room. And so bring us to this news conference. The United States couldn't have possibly known the condition of these soldiers, and Denton had this opportunity. He was one of the biggest resistors. They would try to embarrass him by putting him on television and getting him to denounce the United States foreign policy in Vietnam. And they did it using a, a Japanese journalist's interview. So when he walks out, he's wearing his prison garb and they keep asking him, you know, do you support the government? And his response was, I don't know what my government's policy is at this moment, but I support them, whatever they do. But the whole time he was, you know, it's television back then. So there were a lot of bright lights on him. So he, he was pretending to be blinded by the light as he was talking. So he was very obviously blinking, but he was blinking the message, the word torture in Morse code. Uh, so he's doing three things at once. He's participating in this interview. He's blinking Morse code and uh, he's pretending to be blinded. Like he's acting like that act itself is kind of incredible. And then, the knowledge of forethought to do this is pretty incredible, too. Did the people holding him captive or anyone responsible for him catch on at all while he was doing this? <laughs> they didn't even realize that he did it, actually. I think I, I read somewhere that the North Vietnamese didn't realize that he blinked that until like 1974 after the Americans were already gone. But because he didn't really participate in the interview the way that his captors wanted him to, he was beaten with fan belts for the rest of the night. And you can see on YouTube the video of him in this televised interview blinking in Morse code. We'll have it up on our webpage too. It is wild to see him having the wherewithal to do it. You can see the resolve on his face when you do it. You can see the look in his eyes. And the man by that point had already endured so much that it's a testament to the resiliency of some people, you know, American, not American. I mean, people do amazing things, and even under the worst of conditions. And it's a really great story. Blake Stillwell, thanks for talking to me about it. Yeah, no problem. Rear Admiral Jeremiah Denton's book about his time in captivity, When Hell Was in Session, was made into a 1979 film of the same name with Hal Holbrook. He served as a U.S. Senator representing Alabama from 1981 to 87, and he died in 2014. He's buried at Arlington National Cemetery.
Now imagine you've been driving for a while, like for a long, long while. And no matter how many swigs of coffee you take, no matter how cold the wind is coming from the window that you keep rolling down and back up and back down again, or how loud you blast whichever public radio station is coming through your dial, you can't help it. You're getting groggy. Very groggy. Now, some of these stats might perk you up. According to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, drowsy driving crashes are the cause of injuries to 50,000 people and nearly 800 deaths in a year. Most of these crashes happen between midnight and 6 a.m. or in the late afternoon, which happen to be the times of day in which people experience dips in their circadian rhythm, the human body's internal clock that regulates sleep. But for some long-distance drivers, this problem is noticed and addressed way before BBC World Service comes on, thanks to a headset worn on the ear. It rests right at the base of the eye, and it measures blinks. That's called Vigo. I heard more about this little device from its creator, Jason Gui. So I studied engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and in the last year of mechanical engineering, basically, everyone's tasked with solving a problem, basically, for your senior capstone project. And um, the problem we wanted to solve was actually falling asleep in class. Because, <laughs> you know, as students, it's like you fall asleep all the time, especially in all these boring engineering classes. And so we came up with all these fancy ideas about like a, I don't know, like, like an ear conditioner you wear in your backpack and it blows cold air through you um, or some kind of electric shock. Uh, we came up with, with all kinds of ideas. Um, but what we ultimately uh, ended up with were um, these glasses that had a little infrared tracker that could track your eyes to see if your blink rate was decreasing to determine whether or not you were starting to fall asleep. And uh, we were a little team of four, and ultimately we won a whole bunch of awards um, in college um, for creativity and innovation and all that. And all the professors were like, wow, like I really need this for all my students. Like you should really commercialize <laughs> this. You should really build this and, you know, have every, I'm going to want to have all of my students wear that in class and then no one will fall asleep. So <laughs> that's, that's kind of how um, it all started out. Okay, so you bring this thing to market with the help of some more developers, but it turns out that students aren't the ones who are most interested in this kind of device, right? Drivers um, were super interested in this product because if you fall asleep while driving, then that could be catastrophic. Like, you know, falling asleep in class, there's no bad consequences. But if you're a driver, especially uh, a professional driver who's on the road all day, falling asleep while driving could actually cost you your life. And so that's how we sort of decided to target drivers, um, professional drivers, such as truck drivers, taxi drivers, really needed a product like this. And so we refined the product to be a headset um, that you put on your ear. And there's a part that extends out with a little infrared tip that tracks your eyes looking at your blink motion. So it's looking at things like your, your blink count, your blink intervals, your blink durations. Uh, it's also looking at something called percloss, which is a percentage of closure of your eyes over time. Um, so it's looking at how often your eyes are closed in a certain period of time. So that way, like if you're somebody who doesn't tend to blink a lot, it takes that into context. 
Exactly. And so we look at uh, a lot of these different factors and there's a weighted average where we can ultimately calculate a score um, for you. So if your score is over 80, then you're, you're doing pretty well. Um, if it's between 60 and 80, then you're starting to go down. And if you're below 60, that's a danger zone. And if you're below 40, then that's super dangerous. So when this headset thinks you're getting groggy, what does it do? There's a few built-in alerts it does. So there's a, there's a vibration. So it's sort of like bzz, sort of uh, buzzes you to jolt you. Um, there's a little flashing LED to give you like a warning. So this works better at night to give sort of like a warning, you know, red or blue or some kind of light that's um, uh, jolts you up. Uh, and then the other part to it is the audio part where it plays a music or a tone um, to sort of, you know, waking you up. It's not like it's trying to uh, replace a good night's sleep or replace coffee or anything like that. The bigger idea behind it is um, preventing you from actually dozing off and, you know, running into an accident because you fell asleep. And so it's there to sort of be a preventative measure if you do get into a really bad state where your, your eyelids droop, your head's falling down, then it's sort of just you awake. Yeah. So this is not a clockwork orange uh, device. Exactly. So one, one, one part to it is a warning. The other part to it is actually uh, we have a whole fleet management system uh, dashboard that allows fleet managers to track uh, which driver is doing well and which one's probably not in a good state to drive. So the fleet managers might see on the app like, uh, you know, uh, Linda in this truck looks like she's getting a little drowsy. Why don't we tell her to take a break? Exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, to release some pressure off of drivers and, you know, letting fleet managers know that their drivers aren't doing too well and, and they should actually get a rest. Thank you so much, Jason Gui, for talking with me. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. When we get back. Think of yourself as someone who's working out from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed because the muscles in your face do not stop. How life is different when you have a rare condition where your eyes spasm beyond your control. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, blink. We're hearing stories about blinking as a signifier about other things going on in the body and as a tool to communicate. One condition where blinking is hard and sometimes impossible to control is a rare disorder called blepharospasm. The National Eye Institute at the National Institute of Health says that blepharospasm usually starts with small eyelid twitches that happen every once in a while, and that twitching may happen more and more often and cause the eyes to close completely. To make matters worse, complications from the twitching and blinking may affect other parts of the face and neck. That can make it hard to do everyday things like reading or driving or, you know, generally expanding your horizons and connecting with people. Doctors aren't sure what causes it. They can't say for sure how many months or years it'll last or how bad it'll get. And while there are treatments, there is no cure. Nancy Rosa of Pequague, New York, spent some time with me and my producer Jessica on Zoom to talk about her life with blepharospasm. I asked her to tell me when it all began. Five years ago, it was I was celebrating my 50th birthday. My oldest daughter, who came in from Florida, 
she just realized that I was blinking a lot. I have lupus as well. So she said, mom, you're blinking a lot. I said, it must be the lupus. My eyes are getting dry. And this was in March. By June, the blinking became really where it was impairing my functionality. And I'm trying to drive to work and so forth. So I'm holding one eye open and driving. And then when I got tired of holding that eye open, I would switch to the other one, hold it open. Then I went to see the doctor in September. He says, you're suffering from blepharospasm. And I, I had no clue what that was. So I'm like, what is that? I'm like, so what do I need to do so that this can go away? He said, there's no cure for it. What did it feel like to hear that? It's heart-wrenching. I'm a party person. This condition has changed that. So they recommended Botox, but Botox can only be administered in different um, quantities. You know, they have to start you off at the lowest dose. Every time they inject you, it's just, okay, let's try the 25 milligram. Did absolutely nothing. Went to 50 milligrams, nothing. Went to 100 milligrams, nothing. Meanwhile, you are still having these spasms. You're still having to hold your eye open with your fingers as you're driving. You're blinking all the time. What kind of reactions would you get from people, at least that you could perceive? Many people couldn't understand what it was like. You know, people were funny at my job, you know, and I'm, I'm okay with jokes and I, I can get over it. You know, the guys would be like, hey, Nancy, just duct tape your eyes up. You know, you take it with a grain of salt because they don't understand the severity of it. Because of the spazzing, I tore the muscles in my eyes. And that's why they couldn't even stay open when I tried to keep them open. So even though I was forcing my eyes to be open, the muscles had torn away. So your doctor had to operate to... Tie the muscles back up. And for me now, because of the surgery and the 100 milligrams of Xeomin that I'm on, I'm able to drive again because for two years, I couldn't drive at all. There was no way I can get behind the wheel of a vehicle, not even to get out of my driveway. So it's clear that this has affected you physically in so many ways, but how has this affected you emotionally? Tremendously. Tremendously because I felt I lost who I was. You know, from being a very confident woman always feeling very pretty, always feeling secure of myself. It really took it away from me and where I just, I didn't want to see anyone. I didn't really want people to see me. And even though I was still going to work, I lived in sunglasses and I would work like this. Like holding your eye up. Holding my eye because... At that time, the muscles would, even now, if I'm having a bad day, I'll hold the eye open. But back then, the muscles were torn. So the only way to work was to hold the eye open. So with the shades down, I would work and then I would switch like this. So not too many people 
really knew the full effect of what I was suffering with and the extreme sensitivity to light. You really do have extreme sensitivity to light. Yeah, when we connected, you were wearing these big, dark sunglasses, which if I were to see you out and about, I would think that lady has a vision impairment. Well, you'd be surprised. Some people are like, oh, she's, she feels she's too cool for herself. <laughs> it's like some vanity effect. But I had to have them because the light from the computer does affect me. But because I want you girls to see what this is like, I feel comfortable enough to show you girls so you get a real view of what's going on. And if you notice when I speak, it's just this facial part, like all these muscles here working so hard. And your cheek and your chin. Yes. All this is working really hard because I'm trying really hard to keep the eyes open, to focus on you girls. And I lick my lips a lot. I'll, I'll try to like, keep the face a certain way because the muscles are just going. And so you're exhausted by the end of the day, you're really exhausted because think of yourself as someone who's working out from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed because the muscles in your face do not stop. If you could go back to five years ago when your daughter was like, you know, Ma, your eyes are blinking more than usual. And pass along some wisdom to yourself. What would that wisdom be? It's an emotional struggle. I put my faith in God. That's the only thing that has worked for me. And I'm sorry if I get a little emotional, but um, just be kind to yourself. You've got to give yourself the best life you can just last year, I signed up as a volunteer firefighter. I'm not fighting fires, but I am part of the rescue squad and part of the fire police. I'm only a volunteer, so I really just do what I can when my eyes are well. That alone, that I can help others, strengthens me to say you may be going through this blepharospasm but you can't let it take away your life from you you have to be stronger than this condition because this condition can debilitate you if you let it it sounds like this condition has in many ways changed Maybe not fundamentally who you are, but revealed things in you. Would you say that's true? Yes. I would say it's true. I just hope and pray that through meditation and, and spiritual tranquility and um, learning that um, you're going to be okay. You can't let it break you. As I see people who God bless them that their eyes are fine, like you ladies. How beautiful you both look. And I thank you both for taking the time to look into the awareness of blepharospasm. You're not struggling to look at me. I'm struggling to look at you ladies and to keep my eyes open, 
to see you girls, to communicate with you girls, and to be as normal as I can be. Blaffer spasm, it's tough. It's 15 shots. For me, it's 15 shots per eye. Uh, do they hurt? Yeah, they hurt, yes. And my doctor says, I've improved so much over the years. He says, at least I don't pull on his coat jacket. I don't swear anymore. He says, I think you're getting used to it. I'm like, no, I'm not getting used to it. I come in with the right state of mind. But some days, it's amazing. Sometimes you'll get the shots and they don't hurt as much. But then the next time that I go for shots, sometimes, I guess, depending how active the nerves are in the eyes, he'll give me the shot. And I will like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. And I'm like, why are the shots hurting me so much this month? I'm like, they didn't hurt the last time you did it. He said, if your nerves are really active, it's going to hurt you more. So you don't even know when you go for your shots, how you're going to react to getting your shots that day. And if the shots are truly going to help. That's maddening. Yeah. Xeomin has worked fantastically for me lately. But I've also had incidents in where I go for my Xeomin shots. I'm all gung-ho. Oh, thank God I'm going to get my shots. I'm going to be good. I think it was two years ago we were going out to the Outer Banks. And I was getting my shots two weeks before going to the Outer Banks on vacation with our friends. And I said, oh, good. I'm just in time. I'll get my shots. I'll be in my sweet spot. I'll have so much fun at the beach. We'll have a good time. The shots did absolutely nothing for me. So I cried throughout the whole vacation. I kept myself like secluded. It debilitates you. And it's totally unpredictable. There is no typical with this condition. There is no typical. Every day is a different day. You can't say, I'm going to go get my shots on Thursday, so by Monday I'll be able to drive to work. I can't say that because I don't know if the shots are really going to work. Just because they've worked the past couple of times doesn't mean it's going to work every time. But I refuse to let this take over my life. Nancy Rosa, thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate your time. And please put those glasses back on. (laughs) (laughs) Take a rest. This is my cool look. It is really cool. (laughs) There are rhinestones going on on the side, you know. After the break. I thought, this couldn't be real. Am I having a nightmare? Was my life before real? It's like your mind races with a hundred million thoughts. How one woman blinked her way through locked-in syndrome. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Locked-in syndrome is exactly what it sounds like. You wake up after a stroke, a traumatic brain or spinal cord injury, an infection or an overdose. You can see and think and reason and process the world around you, but you cannot move. All you can do 
is blink your eyes. People with locked-in syndrome eventually may learn to use blinking to communicate. And so do people who struggle to vocalize because of conditions or diseases like ALS, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, or Parkinson's. So what if there were like a universal I language so that anybody, regardless of the spoken language around them, could communicate via blinking? Well, that's a great idea. And Dr. Hamanghi Sane led the team that developed the world's first eye language. It's called Blink to Speak. Dr. Sane is the founder and president of the Asha Ek Hope Foundation and the deputy director of NeuroGen Brain and Spine Institute in Mumbai, India. And she has ALS. Blink to Speak is based on eight eye actions. Eyes shut, blink, look left, look right, look up, look down, wink, and eye roll. I know a few people who are especially good at the eye roll part. The guide lays out about 50 phrases made up of these actions, like blink once for yes, twice for no. Want to say, I want to go to sleep? Blink four times. Or I need a hug? Look up, look down, and then blink twice. Or if you want to tell someone I love you, blink three times. When I spoke with Dr. Sane, I told her how cool I thought all this was. Unlike sign language, which it's often compared to, this really could be used by anyone, anywhere. Naturally, she agreed. It will become like a standard language. A person in uh, Europe and a person in India can come in. She said soon it'll be a global language. It'll become like a standard language. A person in Europe and a person in India can communicate. Blink to Speak is free. See what you can say at blinktospeak.com. Blink to Speak hadn't yet been rolled out when Clota Dunlop suffered a brainstem stroke. Before everything happened, she was a police officer in Northern Ireland who loved running four and a half miles every day. She had no previous health conditions either, so dealing with locked-in syndrome as a result of a stroke was not at all in her plans. But she did discover blinking as a means of communication, and now, six years later, she's back on the force, and she's the author of a book about everything she learned. I asked her to take me back to the day it all started. It was on Easter Monday, April 2015. I was at home. I was 35 years of age at that time. I suddenly took on well. I collapsed and my sister was with me and she called an ambulance. But by the time the ambulance had arrived, any symptoms that I had of a stroke had disappeared but the ambulance conveyed me to a local hospital and it was while I was waiting in the A&E department in my local hospital that I had a massive brainstem stroke. They rushed me to a bigger hospital in Belfast. They told my family to say goodbye because it was unlikely that I would survive the journey. But I did survive the journey. I had a mechanical thrombectomy procedure to retrieve the clot for my brainstem. And I survived the procedure and woke in intensive care. At what point did you realize that you were locked in? As soon as I woke, I was uh, aware of everything that was going on around me. I could hear I could see and I could feel 
And I remember a nurse seeing that I was awake, looked at me and she said, Cloda, you're in Belfast in the Royal Victoria Hospital and you've had a stroke. And she walked away and I remember in my head thinking, hold on, I want to ask you so many questions. I'm 35, I'm fit, I'm healthy. How have I had a stroke? What type of stroke is that? Surely like strokes only happen to older people. If they do happen, they only affect one side of the body. Nothing moves here. And there was a million questions racing around in my head. And it was terrifying. I wanted to scream, somebody tell me more, but there was nothing I could do. I was just a silent observer lying in my bed. Were you in any pain? The first day I woke in intensive care, I was in excruciating pain. And I, I couldn't believe that nobody could tell that I was in excruciating pain, more awful than I thought anybody could be alive with, but yet I couldn't make a noise. I couldn't indicate to anyone that I was alive, that I was in this horrific pain. I just looked serene and peaceful to everybody around me. You had mentioned that the nurse explained where you were and what was going on and then left the room. Did they know you were in there or were they just talking to you because that's a nice thing to do regardless of whether or not you're in there? I think they were just talking to me because they're trained to talk directly to their patient. But I remember being taken for a CT scan on that first day and wheeled along the corridors in the hospital. And the medical staff, they were just talking over me and I was lying in my bed in this excruciating pain and didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on. And I just wanted to scream out, please somebody tell me what is going on, what's wrong with me. But I couldn't move my head even to look around and really fully see where I was at. Cloda, that is the stuff of nightmares. It really is. I I kind of, when I woke, there was for a period of time that I thought, this couldn't be real. Am I having a nightmare? Was my life before real? Is Uh. this real? Have I woke up in the middle of, you know, some strange parallel dimension where I'm going to be sent back to a different life? And those thoughts go through your head. When nobody fully explains everything that's happening, it's like your mind races with a hundred million thoughts. So how did someone, anyone, figure out that you were in there? On the first day, my partner came to the hospital. He looked directly at me and he said, Cloda, if you're there, can you blink once? And I remember thinking, well, I know ever since I awoke from my stroke that I the only thing that has moved in my body has been my eyelids, but I didn't know did I have any control over them. So I was terrified thinking, can I control them? And I remember closing my eyes and closing them really tightly, counting to three slowly and opening them as wide as I could to indicate that I was there. And he looked at me and he was like, 
I knew a stroke wouldn't be you or determined. And I was just like, oh, thank God, you know I'm here. I could have jumped out of bed and kissed him, but I couldn't move a muscle. But I remember being ecstatic in my head. And then he sat for a while and looked at me and talked to me. But then he was like, we should develop a system for communication. And he said, how's about one blink for yes? two blinks for no, three blinks for I love you. And then he looked at me and he was like, is that enough? And I remember blinking no. And he said to me, how is about four blinks for your moral? <laughs> so we had this system of blinks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Adrian starts developing some kind of system, a rudimentary, a beginner system for you. Yeah. How did that system develop? Like, did you come up with more blinks that would mean other things? It was really hard to develop because people don't know how to ask closed questions. So people would say, what is wrong? But how do you answer what is wrong with yes, no, I love you or you're a moron? So very often I used four blinks at the nurses and I'm quite sure many chose to ignore it but it really the system really relied on people being really patient and knowing the right questions to ask it really required someone to ask have you a pain yes if you blink yes and then they can't say where is that pain because that isn't i can't answer that with a blink so they need to break the body down and start asking, is the pain in your head? Yes, no. And then start narrowing down where the pain is at in your head. So it was it was quite time consuming and required for the person who was asking the questions to be patient. But when people got it right, it was invaluable for me and made sure that I was comfortable and that my care was what I wanted. When people would be in the room who maybe didn't realize that you could communicate, maybe just people passing through, did anyone ever say stuff around you that obviously you could hear, but they didn't realize you could? You could hear everything. You really are a silent observer to the world. And I do remember uh, when I was in the stroke ward in the Royal Victoria Hospital uh, line and there was an elderly gentleman opposite me. I could tell there was something wrong that his life was ebbing away and I wanted to like hit a nurse call button to scream for help, but there was nothing I could do. I just lay and I watched him and I lay and I watched until the machine started beeping and the nurses and the medical staff come in and they drew the curtains around and everything was high octane. You could tell they were fighting to save his life, but then there was silence and you knew he's lost his battle to live. And the nurses drew the curtains open again and as they, everybody left the room and walked past me, they glanced at me and I knew that I looked really serene and peaceful. No one thought to say, are you okay? Had I heard this? And I remember in my head, I was probably screaming louder than I've ever screamed. You know, 
I could have saved this man if I could have moved, if I could have made a sign. And that was difficult. You do hear and see things that you don't want to when you're a silent observer because you have absolutely no control over your environment. How did you get beyond blinking to communicate that next stage of of activity in your body? What happened next? It was wonderful. I was assessed by speech and language therapy and they assessed that cognitively I was okay and that I was able to spell and I was issued with an IGAS spell board. It was an electronic board where I would look at the letters that I wanted to use to spell out a word and the person I was reliant on somebody using the board at the other side and they would, for every letter, I indicated with two blinks um, because it was, I indicated to the letter, which was in a color, and then the letter was colored itself. So the person at the other side of the board would see me blinking at a color. And it's kind of like predictive text in your phone where it worked out what I wanted to say and I could spell out and that really was liberating and it really changed for me having locked in syndrome and not being able to communicate was horrific it really is your worst nightmare imagine being buried alive but people are walking past you and your loved ones are around you and you've no way really of communicating but suddenly the world that I knew before, being able to communicate and tell people what I thought and what I felt, it became, life became so much more bearable when I could communicate that I had an itch, that I was uncomfortable, or to ask people to tell me about their day and general conversation. And nurses began to use the spell board when they were talking to me and some would take real time and patience to get to know me and that was wonderful and for the first time I remember thinking if I have locked in syndrome forever I could cope as long as I am able to communicate. Which shows the power of being able to communicate in any way possible. It really, I I don't think I'd ever fully appreciated the gift of speech and being able to talk. I don't think I fully appreciated the gift of sight, being able to see people's facial expressions because communication is more than just speech. It's body language, it's facial expression. And I never really appreciated it until I had locked in syndrome. For me, when I would spell out I could say to somebody, I'm really cross. And they would be like, okay, I'm quite blasé about it because I had no facial expression. They were just words on paper. So I find that sometimes I had to use offensive language to emphasize that I was angry or upset. And if I made a joke uh, whilst I would spell it out, people wouldn't laugh because they'd think, is she serious or not? And suddenly I realized humor really is based on the tone of your voice and the facial expression. 
And so very often if I said something that I wanted to be humorous, I had to write lol, lol, so that people would get that I'm laughing. Um, so it definitely taught me a lot about communication, that it's more than just a spoken word. After you were able to begin communicating more and developing your communication skills, what got you out of the hospital? Like, what was that leap you had to make so you could get home? There was no leap. Um, but I think the defining moment for me was when my best friend came to visit me in hospital and I was spelling out to her. And people had a real bad habit of finishing your sentence for you, assuming they knew what you're going to say. And I think she is my best friend, thought she knew me well and would finish my sentences. But I had wanted her to get my medication for me. And but she never let me finish spelling out tablets. She kept saying, I don't know what's on the table. What do you want on the table? And as I got more agitated, I guess I became more frustrated in what I was spelling out, just angry thoughts. But in my anger, I, I for the first time in my life, I could understand why people commit crimes of passion because I thought, if I could get out of this bed, I would kill you. Literally, I was so, I have never felt so much anger in my life. I'm not an angry person. But in that moment of anger where I thought, if I jump out of this bed, I'm going to strangle you. Both my arms moved about half a centimeter. And I made this god awful noise that sounded, my friend says it sounds like a dying pig. But all the nurses came in. My best friend was crying and I was making this sound like a dying pig. And suddenly the nurses were like, that's you, Clodagh, making that noise. And they started jumping up and down. They were so happy. And then my best friend and I, when we realized that I had made noise, um, we started to laugh. And, and that was the first moment that I think, I guess, I had real hope about the future that maybe just maybe I might be able to talk again someday. It's been six years, more or less, since all this started. Is there anything that you wish had gone differently, other than the stroke not happening in the first place? I think other than the stroke not happening, I think for me, I really, communication is so important. I felt that in intensive care, I might die because I couldn't communicate. I had no way of indicating to staff that I was in the most awful pain, that I was excruciatingly hot. And I wish that, I guess, that I could train medical staff. Um, the nurses, you know how to ask closed questions and all the open questions made me upset and anxious and they made an awful situation worse but for those who took the time you know I think of them as my angels and there maybe only was one or two who didn't you know use the spelling board or ask me closed questions but 
they stick out in my mind as being the nights that I felt that I was being tortured. I would complain that my human rights were being breached because when you're completely paralyzed, you can't, uh, you have no way of controlling your own personal care. So I had to wear an adult diaper. And I remember at nights when I would have a bowel movement, there was no way I could indicate to anyone. And it really upset me that for eight hours, you might lie in your own feces until the smell would fill the ward. And it's really taught me that if you can't communicate in a normal way, you're very vulnerable and society as a whole, they kind of view you as a lesser person. And I think that would be my big thing, just because someone can't communicate in a normal fashion or don't have a facial expression or indeed if they can't see, I think communication is all those things. And if people are missing one part, it does make them more vulnerable to the world around them. Well, I've asked everything that I I know I can fit into this conversation, but is there anything that I missed or that you want to make sure you say? Just if you are having hard times and think there's no hope, I think reading my story would show you that in the darkest of times, there's always hope. Well, Cloda Dunlop, thank you so much for talking with me, and I'm so glad that you can. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. It's lovely to meet you. You can read all about Cloda's experience in her book, A Return to Duty. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin D. Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to shows about things like what it's like for a blind person to use echolocation to ride a bike, what food item the illustrator for the Great British Bake Off has never drawn, what we can learn from children who have a rare disease and the moms who love them, and the psychology, history, and contradictions behind many superstitions. Visit ctpublic.org audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>